Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So we're up to episode 21. You are back from uh, New York. You didn't get shipped off to Shanghai, which is uh, going on right now. Um, but we've got some stuff to talk about, starting with, uh, as usual, the garage. You've had a few things to drive uh, some old and some new, and two of them are infinities. So. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, just as uh, we recorded the last episode, uh, just before I went to New York, I had just gotten uh, a Chevy, the new Chevy Cruze diesel um, for the weekend because we recorded that one on Friday night. And I got that car on, on uh, Friday afternoon um, and then dropped that off at the airport uh, when I flew out to New York on Monday morning. And uh, so, um, you know, I've driven the cruise before. Uh, the new, the second generation cruise, I drove that about, uh, I guess about July of last year with the gas engine and they've just started shipping, uh, diesels, the, the new diesel version, uh, to dealers, which, uh, the timing is fortuitous because, uh, there's right now a lot of Volkswagen, uh, customers, uh, selling their Volkswagen diesels back to VW at premium prices, just like I did this week and looking for replacements. But also, can't you now buy a Volkswagen diesel with the fix from Volkswagen for a pretty cut rate price? Yeah, there's there's about uh, I think roughly around twenty nine thousand um, Jettas and Golfs um, from the twenty fifteen model year that cars that were in stock that were either at the port or at dealers um, in September of twenty fifteen when the stop sale occurred, you know, and this, this whole thing broke wide open. And, uh, so those cars basically got set aside for, you know, the better part of the last two years, VW was not allowed to sell them until they could come up with a fix for them. Uh, and they finally got an approved, a fix approved by EPA and CARB, the California air resources board, uh, a few weeks ago, and they've started implementing that. So, um, those vehicles have been released for sale now. Uh, but like I said, there's only 29,000 of those and there's, you know, 485,000 cars that are being repurchased by Volkswagen. Uh, 
and you know some or that are eligible for repurchase there are some people you know who want to keep their old cars they they like them the way they are and they say they're not going to get them fixed or or sell them back to VW and that's fine there's probably going to be a few thousand of those people uh and there's others that are um in line uh, when we went to turn in our 2010 Jetta on Monday uh the uh the guy at the dealership there said that um i guess they've got about f- more than 50,000 people on the waiting list for these 29,000 cars oh man so you know if you're not already on the list for one of those you're probably not going to get one so uh, it's you can't just go out and snap up one of these cars that was in limbo just to get a good deal because Volkswagen needs to try to make something off this, this yeah no prop you're probably not going to get one like I say if you haven't already given a deposit to your local dealer for one of these things chances are um, you're out of luck uh, so that means you're gonna have to look elsewhere if you want uh, a, a small car with a diesel engine uh, in the United States elsewhere such as the cruise so we talked yeah, about that's it a basically bit. the only option yeah. right now that Volkswagen's out of the diesel business and so how does the cruise hold up to your initial impressions of it from the last uh, podcast uh, the diesel is actually really good uh, it's it's much more refined than the first generation cruise diesel was. Uh, which they sold uh, from 2013 through about 2015. They sold yeah, that, it for that, that more than two years. It sounded like a little bread truck. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, that was that was an older generation engine. Uh, you know, it had been updated with a common rail injection system and, and you know, modern uh, emission system. But, you know, that was basically an experiment. Um, you know, GM did almost no promotion of that car. Uh, there was very little advertising. Uh, and, you know, they still managed to sell about 6,000 a year of those things for over, you know, for two years. Um, and, it, you know, it, it did well, uh, it did surprisingly well, given the, the lack of, of marketing behind the car. Um, you know, it was fairly pricey. Um, you know, I think they started at about $26,000. You know, they came fairly well loaded at the time. And, um, you know, aside from, you know, the engine being on the noisy side, it was really fuel efficient. I think I got somewhere in the mid 40s with the thing, uh, you know, close to 50 driving on the highway. And the new one uh, is a is a clean sheet design that was you know uh, launched. It launched in Europe uh, in the spring of 2015, just a few a few months before uh, the Volkswagen diesel scandal occurred. And it's funny, uh, you know, GM did the the reveal event for the new cruise in June of 2015 uh, here in Detroit, uh, just two months before all this happened with Volkswagen. And then, you know, they announced at the time, Dan Nicholson, who's the VP of propulsion systems engineering at, uh, at GM, told me at the time that, you know, GM wanted to be the leader in North American passenger car diesels. Um, and it looks like uh, they're going to get their wish. Um, <laughs> I wonder if they hired <laughs> Russian hackers to sink Volkswagen. <laughs> I doubt it. So, but, sorry. I mean, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're surprisingly bullish on diesels in, in small cars and utilities. Uh, you know, so they've launched it in the cruise. Uh, and uh, later this summer, it'll be coming out in the new 2018 Chevy Equinox and in the GMC Terrain. Uh, as well, the same 1.6 liter engine, and it's it's really good. It's really quiet, very smooth. 
um, and very fuel efficient. You know, I, I got uh, around 35, 36 miles per gallon around town, uh, about 50 on the highway, uh, and about 45 overall. It's EPA rated at, at 52 highway. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a really good engine. And, you know, if you want something that's really fuel efficient, especially if you do a lot of highway driving, um, you know, where you're not really going to get nearly as much benefit from a hybrid. Uh, the the cruise diesel is is an excellent option to consider. You know, it's and it's a nice car overall. It's it's good looking. Um, you know, it's it's well executed inside. Nice nice interior. Um, and it's right now it's only available in the four door sedan. Uh, you can get it with uh, six speed manual or the new nine speed automatic that GM co developed with Ford. Uh, and then in the fall. Uh, it'll be also available in the hatchback. So, you know, if you're a, a golf TDI fan, uh, this will be, uh, you know, the, the cruise hatchback diesel will be your best option to replace it. I mean, GM should totally go right after that fact that you, you cannot get a golf TDI. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they will be up. I'm sure that they're probably doing a bunch of targeted advertising right now, you know, looking uh, you know, looking at, at, you know, the, the demographics that would be shopping for golfs or, you know, that would be looking for Volkswagen diesels, uh, trying to target those people. And, and, you know, they, I'm sure they've bought up, um, you know, vehicle registration data from all the state DMVs, you know, and found all the owners of, of, uh, VW TDIs and, you know, they're sent out direct mail campaigns and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure they'll be doing everything they can to attract those customers in with their, with their VW buyback checks. You know, they should contact, uh, this new fledgling creative director with an agency, uh, that's just hungry. I'll, you know, I'll send an email to Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some industry people listen to the podcast. Maybe I can, can drum up some business that way. There you go. I don't know. Probably nobody at Volkswagen, but yeah. anyway, you, you also had, uh, so let's move on to infinities. Um, you had a, a very old infinity, which took me a minute because they changed their naming scheme and screwed up all their model numbers and continues to confuse me, but you had the QX 50, which right. um, we were marveling that, that that thing's like, it's, definitely 10 years old yeah i mean it, it um it launched originally in uh, the u.s in 2007 as the uh I, as the ex 35 not the ix the ex 35 uh and it was their their uh, infinity's first compact crossover uh based on the uh the nissan fm platform which is the same platform that is used for was used for the previous generation G35, G37, uh, as well as the uh, the FX, uh, which is now the QX70, uh, and then also uh, uh, this little car you might know of uh, called the uh, 370Z, I think. Um, all you know, they they all share the same platform architecture. Yeah, and the EX35 was about the size of the Z. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not that much longer. You know, um, I actually wrote a review of it for Autoblog back in 2008. Uh, and um, at the time, you know, you know, I thought it, it drove reasonably well, but um, you know, it was not particularly useful as a crossover because it had a very short wheelbase and the, the back seat was really cramped. There was no legroom in the back seat. Um, and a couple of years later, when they launched the EX in China, um, they added a longer wheelbase version. It was uh, had a three inch longer wheelbase. And when they 
did the the refresh, the mid-cycle refresh of the EX and changed the name to QX50 in about 2012, I think, they brought that longer wheelbase version over here. So when they switched from EX to QX branding or QX50, um, they uh, we got the longer version, which now has a usable back seat, still drives reasonably well, but you know some of the uh, it's it's got the older infinity interior design with their infotainment system and by modern standards it's kind of quirky yeah you know, it, it's not it's not very intuitive in terms of you know finding some of the the controls buried in there um and you know it, it, it drives fine but it's not it's not the most up-to-date um electronic experience in yeah, their technology it, experience it's a little quaint i mean my because i just had one of these um I might have been in 2017, early 17. I had a 2016. I forget. Anyway, I thought that they did. They waited until 2016 to add the the additional three inches of wheelbase. But I, I could be off on that. Um, I think the most surprising thing that I found about this car was how well it still drives. And I have a stillborn review of it that uh, I should just get around to publishing anyway. <laughs> Um, but my take on it was like, there's life in the old girl yet. Like this car is surprisingly great to, to drive. I think because it reminds me of the things that I liked so much about the, the G35 and G37, which you can't get anymore. Um, and back when it launched, uh, they had all kinds of nonsense about, you know, uh, the active style seeker, um, you know, who enjoys the freedom of being an, an empty nester. Uh, so, you well, know, the, I mean, you, you would want empty, you would want to be right. an empty nester because you couldn't actually fit anybody in the back seat. Right. It, well, and it was like, you know, in other words, the QX 50 is basically a luxurious Z car hatchback. Essentially. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, so, but that's a little, the, little bit taller, you know, higher riding, but not, you know, not, not enough to be considered a, a proper SUV. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it was it was a vehicle that was kind of ahead of its time when it launched 10 years ago. It, it was. Uh, and I I um, I also noted that when they I think it was last year, they bumped the sales numbers by like 500 percent increase um, between 2015 and 2016. And, and I was like, what's up with that? And uh, basically, Kyle Bazemore uh, at Infinity um, wrote me back an email and said, you know, we, we revised it last year, uh, made it more competitive. And since we did that, our sales have increased dramatically. Uh, I'm not terribly convinced that the wheelbase is why the sales increased or whatever kind of other games they were playing, uh, didn't play into it. But uh, I, I honestly, like, I think this is going to make a great used car purchase because it's most likely to be owned by grownups, um, with the demographics of the owners. And it, it does drive, like yeah, a premium it, it, sports sedan. Yeah, I mean it's got it's got remarkably good driving dynamics because you know it, it essentially is you know uh, a G thirty five G thirty seven you know with you know with four doors and a hatchback uh, and you know a little bit higher ride height than you know than yeah. the sedans um, and you know it's got that marvelous um, three point seven liter VQ V six. I mean you know the VQ has been an amazing engine for Nissan and Infiniti for man, it seems like forever 20, 20 now. Years. But has it been that long since almost, the original? Almost. Yeah. So the original was the it replaced the VG, which okay. was the V six that was back in the Z car in the late eighties, early nineties. That was their first 
sort of real like the you remember the the original Ford Ford DSC Maximus yeah. right that okay. was the VG engine and then they replaced right. the VG with the VQ and the VQ has now been around for a long time I was I yeah was I mean you know it's been it's been upgraded over the years it's got direct injection now and uh, you know uh, it's you know got a bump in displacement from 3.5 to 3.7 you know it's it's more than 300 horsepower and you know it's smooth and it's it's fast and and torquey you know it's just a great engine uh, no matter which application they put it in yeah and so if you're in the market for a clapped out g35 or g37 find yourself a qx50 or ex35 or whatever because it's probably going to be in better shape and all of the goodies that the aftermarket may have to offer will still probably bolt on <laughs> and uh it's just an i found it a nice place to be you know some of the the infotainment stuff is definitely quaint and quirky but uh not in a terrible way it was it was okay for the time so it's it's okay for now yeah i mean i i had some issues with the bluetooth and i'm not sure if that was you know originating from my phone or the bluetooth in the car you know it sometimes it didn't want to actually stream the audio from my phone through the through the entertainment system but other than that you know the other stuff basically worked so um you know that that you know and the the current qx50 is like i say you know this is its last model year uh we've already seen at the detroit auto show this year we saw the concept uh a qx50 concept which is the next generation qx50 which will probably launch before the end of this year. We've already seen spy photos of it running on the road. Uh, you know, it adopts, you know, Nissan or Infinity's uh, newer design language, you know, so it's going to look more like, like the, the latest Infinity uh, coupes and sedans. Um, Which and, is good because it's pretty. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it is. It's good. The new one's, the new one's going to be really nice. Uh, it'll be a nice upgrade from this one. Uh, and we may see that, uh, you know, maybe this fall or maybe at the LA auto show, uh, for its production debut. And, uh, yeah, the other infinity you managed to get into was, yeah. The, uh, the so we, we, yeah, we swapped that one out yesterday for the new Q60 coupe. Um, and, uh, that's the, the latest addition to the infinity lineup, uh, replacing the old, um, was it, was it the Q40? Coupe, uh, whatever, uh, whatever they rebadged the G37 coupe as uh, it, the, the Q60 is it's a stunning car. Uh, you know, it one of the one of the advantages that Infinity has over, um, over over some of the other brands, you know, is they they've got rear wheel drive platforms to work with. So, you know, this one is, you know, it's a really good, you know, uh, basic platform. And, you know, again, it's powered by the uh, it's actually powered by uh, the VR V6 now, you know, which is a newer generation V6 engine. It's a three liter twin turbo, um, 300 horsepower in this particular version. But there's also a 400 horsepower version that's available in the Q60. Um, and uh, it's it's a lovely just a lovely car to drive. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm just looking at pictures, getting a little distracted. It's it's certainly uh, pretty. Uh, does it live up to, you know, again, every time I got into one of those FM platform cars, I just walked away impressed no matter how old they are. Does it does it live up to that? Because, I, you know, when they went to this newer uh, generation, um, it kind of lost a little bit, at least in the sedans. I don't know about, yeah. you know, the, the, the one the one downside to this uh, version um, the, the basic platform is really good. Um, you know, the, the ride and handling, uh, is, is really good and it's got, um, 
uh, adjustable driver modes uh, and there's a, an adjustable damping system, you know, so you can, you can make it a little bit softer or firmer depending on what kind of roads you're driving on and you can change the throttle response. Um, the one thing, the, the, the one complaint about it is the steering because they've adopted this um, drive by wire steering system. So there's no direct connection between the steering wheel and the, the, uh, the, the front wheels, <clears throat> which means that, uh, whatever feedback you get is absolutely synthetic. Um, and for the most part, it, it feels fine, but you know, when you start to push it a little more, it, there's something just not quite right there. Yeah. I mean, it goes exactly where you point it, you know, so it, it doesn't do anything unpredictable. It just doesn't quite feel right. That's still got to be in the back of your mind, like a little bit terrifying. <laughs> Although, don't they do they still have a backup sort of mechanical connection or is it just straight up drive by wire at this point? Where it's straight up. They, they say it's straight up drive by wire, that there's no mechanical connection there. I mean, there is there is something, um, you know, if there's a failure of some sorts, you know, it'll basically straighten up the wheels. You know, so there's a mechanical system in there to, to just turn the wheels straight. Um, you know, so you're, they're not pointed off in some random direction, but aside from that, um, yeah, apparently there's, there is no mechanical connection from the wheel to the, to the, the steering gear. That's, uh, very terrifying. Hey, I, it's, that's the future, man. Yeah, I suppose. And you know, there's, there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do for feedback though. Like, I don't know how you solve that problem if there's no connection to the wheels there is going to be no feedback unless you come up with some other way to, to put some sort of feeling back into that steering wheel, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's whatever you do is obviously going to be synthetic stimulate or stimulate simulated feedback. Um, you know, that you would have to have a, a model in the, the controls, you know, that looks at, you know, what the current, speed is and the the uh the steering angle and lateral acceleration um and and yaw rate you know and you can figure out what kind of force you want to put back you know a reverse torque back into the steering wheel to um counteract what you're putting in so if you're if you're turning the wheel left uh you're going to have a force turning back towards the right uh from you know from an electric motor um you know that's simulating what you would get from a mechanical setup um, but you know, it's, I, I think, I think it's going to be, it's going to take more work to really get that to feel natural. Yeah. And, you know, it, it may never feel entirely natural, uh, before we get to autonomous vehicles. So at which point it doesn't matter anymore. Which are completely unnatural. <laughs> yeah. So but, but part of me feels like that's a lot of effort to go through when you could just put a steering rack with an actual like shaft and U joint. But on the other hand, one of the benefits of this is the same thing that we've seen in a different uh, manifestation in, in lots of cars is how the, the automatic transmission shifter is being redesigned. It, it allows more packaging freedom. And so, uh -huh. you know, if you don't have to have a shaft from, you know, if you don't have to have the steering column, you can, you can uh, change your, your dash to axle dimension a lot more and, freely. And, and you don't have to try and wrap it around the engine and the exhaust system. Yeah. And, uh, you can also do things like, you know, have um, continuously variable, you know, an, an active steering system um, that changes the steering ratio depending on the conditions, depending on the speed. Um, you know, so, for example, at low speeds, you know, when you're maneuvering around in a parking lot, you can have 
uh, a faster steering ratio, you know, it gives you a tighter turning circles to make it easier to pull into a parking space. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're out on the open road, you want to slow that down a little bit. Uh, a lot of times, you know, to give you a little more stability and, and uh, control over the vehicle. Yeah. So there are benefits. Uh, I don't, for whatever reason tonight, I don't feel like uh, completely being a crank about it. <laughs> so it's yeah i mean it's it's an interesting thing it, I, you know it's it's not it's not a hardcore sports car and it you know it's not meant to be it's it's more of a, a gt yeah uh, you know a touring car i mean it's like i say it's gorgeous uh it's got amazing proportions um you know a lot of really nice detailing in the design um and you know beautiful interior it's got this interesting setup that infinity's gone to in the last couple of years with uh dual touch screens in the center stack and so the at the top is um the navigation screen uh you know which is an older style screen you know that doesn't have multi-touch you know it's a touch screen uh but it's you know just single point touch you know so there's no pinch to zoom and things like that and then down below that is a newer style capacitive screen with multi-touch you know that's got uh, various, you know, other controls, you can swipe through the, the buttons that are on there and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather have the, uh, the Android auto that's, uh, in my wife's new car or in, in the cruise. Uh, but Hey, you know, that's me. Yeah. Um, we know where I stand on touchscreen, so I don't need to, remember. Yeah. um, sorry. Well, my drives, I've had two things over the last uh, week. The first one uh, was the Genesis G90 uh, 3.3 twin turbo all-wheel drive. Uh, so I've, there's some, some things that Genesis will like to hear in terms of impressions, and there's some things that I think they still need to work on. So we'll start with the good. Uh, at first, I, I, you know, I was four stories up and looking through a dirty window, but I thought it was Nest class. So that's, that's <laughs> a plus until I looked again. And then I was like, Oh no, that, I think that's Genesis. And it, it's a, it's a good looking car. Um, it's a serious luxury car inside the materials and the fit and finish. I, I thought were excellent. Um, and I, the 3.3 liter twin turbo V6 is, it's not quite as powerful as I thought it would be. It's it's I think it's like 365 horsepower. Um, torque is plentiful, you know, and it's a modern turbo engine. So there's just torque available at pretty much any engine speed you need. Uh, and it's a very flat torque curve. Uh, and that's a, that's a topic we'll come back to later in the show. Uh, awesome. Um, and I, I did. I was impressed with how smooth and quiet the engine is, which is perfect for this car. It just, you know, it purrs along on the highway. 80 miles an hour is 2000 RPM. And it, it it's great uh there's a v8 available i can't fathom why you'd buy that um but it's it's there uh and at its core you know this this genesis chassis is is well tuned uh it it rides with smoothness good control over the wheels uh and yet it's still like inherently it's a good handling chassis um steering is a little slow because of the kind of car it is, you know, even in sport mode, uh, the suspension doesn't tighten up quite as much as I wanted, but it's definitely not a boat. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we're headed into spring. So I had no real way of testing out how effective the all wheel drive is other than to say it's completely unobtrusive. So, so there's that, um, all of that said, uh, I, I still feel anytime I drive one of these Genesis cars that, 
uh, while they do so many things right, uh, the chassis rigidity is not quite up there with the S-Class and 7 Series that they want to compete with. Um, kind of a nitpick, the, the head restraints were really aggressive and they were electrically adjustable, so there's no way to do my normal trick of taking them out and turning them around. <laughs> so my head well, Can you adjust like, them backwards? I mean, can you, can you push them back away from your head? They have a little bit of forward-backward adjustment, but not enough. So what happens when, that, when they're like that is just they, you know, they make me sit in a weird posture and I wind up actually tilting the seat back uh, further back than is really terribly comfortable and genesis is not alone in this volvo actually does it too that was one of my biggest complaints about the s60s that i owned uh was that there was no way to really adjust that thing and i i know why they do it but i still they're just trying to protect your neck against whiplash yeah i mean i you know what how about i don't hit stuff and if i get whiplash (laughs) it's my fault but i i mean i i get it uh some brands are better than others at at uh leaving you that that little bit of adjustment um to to really dial it in uh you know the brand perception of genesis is still a thing um it's it's not it's not terrible uh and i'll I'll get to that again in a second um you know the the styling i think the the fact that i thought it was an s class at first glance was good but also you know it's very handsome but it's also somewhat anonymous uh i i don't know where to where it's like that's on both like the pluses and the minuses. Uh, it's, somebody's going to want it to be a little bit more of one thing, and you know somebody else is going to want it to be a little bit less. So I, you know, the fact that I have it at, on sort of like both of my lists is probably means it's perfect. Um, and uh, yeah, the chassis thing, uh, I, and I I prefer the G80 because it feels a little stiffer from behind the wheel, and it's not quite so big, you know. But this is definitely the G90 is the right size for private car services or, you know, for someone who wants the trappings of an S class or a seven series, but they don't want to spend the money, you know, and that's, that's where, you know, the brand perception thing, uh, doesn't really matter quite as much. And, and Genesis back when Hyundai was launching the, the single model, uh, noted as much, they said, you know, this is a car that is not for that, first time Mercedes buyer or first time BMW buyer, they're, they're going to buy those, those brands because that's, that's what they want. But it's the car for somebody who's had one or two or, or more of those brands. And they, so they know what it's about and they just, they want the, the experience without necessarily being that married to the brand and all of the, you know, the stuff that we complain about with those brands too, the, the reliability issues, the price that, you know, the, 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 the jokes that people make about where the, the, uh, the porcupine quills are, um, <laughs> for being uh, and I, you know, that's, that's I don't my, think I've heard that joke. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to keep it clean because sometimes I work a little blue anyway. Uh, you know, it's, I guess my last point about, uh, the G90, um, and, and, you know, this, this dovetails nicely with you being in New York. Um, Manfred Fitzgerald, who is running Genesis, uh, gave an interview to, uh, I think it was car advice. Um, the Australian publication. And, you know, he said he sees the primary vision of the brand right now as establishing credibility in the luxury field. So they're not chasing volume, although I'm sure the balance sheet is a real important aspect of his job. Uh, you know, Hyundai seems to be expecting that they're, they're probably going to lose a little bit of money first as it takes Genesis from a model to a brand. Uh, and that's going to take a while. Um, but from from my perspective as someone who gets to spend a lot of time in these cars without without the bias of spending my own money on it 
um, which makes me very lucky. I should say thank you. Keep them coming. Uh, <laughs> I can say they're making a very convincing effort and it doesn't hurt uh, that in New York, we just, you know, they just unveiled their slick crossover for the brand um, or SUV. Did you get to see the GV80 while you were I, there? I did. I did see it. And uh, it's it's a really good looking vehicle. It's uh, I'll be interested to see how it how it plays in the marketplace and hopefully um, they get some production wheels that look something like the wheels on this concept because those were very cool looking wheels. Yeah. Um, on each of the spokes, you know, you had a, a section that looked kind of like a mesh. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a very unique design and I, I hope they managed to get something like that into production. I love what Hyundai and Kia are doing by bringing just, you know, world, you know, world-class design, to every price point. I, I love that because, you know, in the past design has been one of those things that is the mark of, uh, you know, premium. And that doesn't have to be the case because the design isn't more or less expensive to to produce, really. You know, it's it's just you how much value the particular brand places on design. So I just I love how how great everything in both of their lineups really does look. Um, and it's yeah. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, in the last few years, uh, I think about three years ago, they moved Peter Schreier over from leading Kia design to giving him oversight over all Hyundai Motor Group design. So he's he oversees both Kia and Hyundai now. Uh, and, you know, it, his his influence is definitely felt uh, across those brands. And it's a good influence. Um, I think he is planning to retire in the next year or two, though. Um, and hopefully, you know, they'll have another strong leader with a with a good vision that can continue carrying this uh, these design themes forward into the future. You know, because one of the things that's really helped both Hyundai, Kia, and and of course now Genesis uh, over the last decade is you know, developing a, a consistent design philosophy for each one of those brands. So, you know, you look at, you know, it used to be that, you know, you, you look at across the Hyundai lineup and there was nothing to connect aside from the Hyundai badge, there was nothing to connect any two models. You that's, know, they, yeah, <laughs> that's you know, true. You, if you took the badges off, you would never guess that they were all Hyundais um, or, you know, same thing at Kia. And now, you know, you look at each, you know, you look at anything from Kia now, and even without the badges, you know, you, you can recognize that these are all part of the same family. They all have a, a common DNA. Same thing with Hyundai and same thing with Genesis, um, you know, and, you know, going forward into the, the GV80 um, and the, the upcoming G70, which they haven't shown yet, uh, which will be a little bit smaller than the, uh, uh, the G80 and uh, presumably based on the, uh, the Kia Stinger platform. Uh, so it, it's going to be, I'll be very curious to see how this all plays out over the next few years to see if they can keep this momentum going. I think they will be. I mean, clearly the company has invested in design. They've, you know, they want to be a leader and they're, they're at both ends of the spectrum. Um, and they're, they're kind of well-funded to do it. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, whoever replaces, uh, Peter Schreier is going to have a big big job to to do but um you know automotive design is not uh not lacking for talent uh there's there's a lot of talented folks out there uh coming up <laughs> so it'll be just i think it'll be interesting to see if they poach somebody which brand they poach them from <laughs> yeah or you know the, i mean they could very well promote from within now you know i mean they've had 
you know, they've had a group of designers now for, for several years, you know, that have been working uh, with Schreier and, and the rest of his team. Uh, you know, so I think they could easily promote somebody from within um, and keep this going. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's another good approach too, especially just to get that continuity of, of point of view. Um, so I went from the, I went from the Genesis to, I had a very luxurious two weeks here. I'm, I'm finishing out this week in the, uh, the Lexus RS 450, RX 450, uh, hybrid. Um, and so I haven't had that much time with it. I just want to touch on it briefly, but, uh, you know, they've really fixed a lot of the complaints I had about the last RX. This is the first time I've driven the new RX. Um, the hybrid is, it, you know, it's, it's very good. And the last RX felt kind of cheap inside. Uh, they've, they've updated it quite a bit. So the materials, uh, are, are pretty good. The infotainment is still kind of wonky, but it's better. Um, and, and that's one thing about the, the G90 actually was that the infotainment was really quite good. Uh, it had a very large screen in the dash. Um, so you know, again, it's a very competitive space and that's one of the things that sells the cars is the, the infotainment systems. Um, Lexus and Toyota is not, not quite as good, but the, the styling of this new RX, it, it goes from blobby to kind of, you know, a lot more chiseled. It, it's a very, it's a very big improvement. Uh, so I, despite my biases found myself actually appreciating the RX this, this afternoon as I drove it. <laughs> um, cause you know, it's, it's, it's so good at being a Lexus, right? That an enthusiast can sometimes have a hard time connecting with it. I, I really love, you know, the, the, the Lexus coupe, um, stuff that they've been doing in the sports sedan, uh, stuff, but in the IS as well, but just the, the RX has always left me a bit cold. Uh, I, I have not minded my time with it this week. So either I'm getting older or they're getting better or both. So, uh, I think it's probably a bit of both probably more of the former, but, uh, <laughs> All right, whatever, I'll take it. Uh, you're, you're age, you're aging into the, uh, the Lexus family. Oh no, <laughs> that's okay. I'll fight it. As hey, I'm older than you are. And I've found recent Lexuses to be more appealing as well. I think they're working so. a lot harder. They, they really are. Yeah, you know, they, they absolutely are. Um, I mean, you know, Lexus, you know, from the time the brand was born, you know, in 1990, you know, it was always about refinement. Um, you know, especially in the early years, you know, they, they weren't exciting to look at, but man, were they screwed together? Well, they were solid and quiet, um, you know, and they just, you know, floated down the highway. Um, and over the years they've, you know, they've added a bit more style in there. Um, maybe, you know, in, in some, in some cases, maybe gone a little bit, uh, over the top on, on a few of their recent efforts, but, um, you know, they, they certainly, you know, this year with the LC and the LS, uh, you know, they've, they've come up with a couple of really stunning looking cars and they've, they've added a lot more, um, interesting driving capability into their cars in the last few years as well. You know, there's, there's, they're starting to show some of the influence of, uh, Akio Toyota, uh, you know, when, when he came in, you know, around 2010, uh, he, you know, he wanted to put passion back into Toyota uh, and Lexus. And, you know, we're, we're starting to see, we've been seeing that coming in in the last few years with Lexus. Yeah. And that's that's all. Uh, I mean, if they can make a, a hybrid crossover that has I'm sure it's median buyer age is not terribly low. Um, if they can make that it's, to satisfy. It's probably it's probably, you know, in, in the mid to upper 40s to 50s their medium medium buyer age for that is probably at least 50 
I could be wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I think a lot of, uh, you know, younger families, you know, affluent younger families, you know, um, you drive, drive RXs. Huh. Okay. I mean, I could, I could, I could see it. I suppose I, it had just never been a factor just because, I, you know, so much of the last one, I've like, that's a lost generation of RX to me. I feel like they've gotten there. You know, then the first RX was just that was a, a, a turning point car. You know, that was the late 90s. It was Lexus just, you know, being ahead of everybody. And just, it was just a knockout. Um, and either the it evolved through two generations after that. And then the third generation was kind of meh. Uh, they've, they've gotten their groove back with this one. So. Uh, did you is the one you drove is the one you had the uh, f sport no i don't think so okay. it's just uh you can do a hybrid f sport yeah i had one last summer yeah that seems weird but no i don't think so because <laughs> it doesn't have the f badge on the defender okay. back yeah um i mean i'm sure that that's actually probably somewhat entertaining if it has any kind yeah, of it's, suspension yeah it's 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 pretty yeah it's pretty good to drive and uh i think probably the the only um complaint i would make about it is that the, you know the grill is maybe a little bit too uh over the top too too insect like although they call it a spindle it's like yeah it's not a spindle it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's even more aggressive looking on the f sport version it's a bug um okay well good i think we've we've gone through the all we can say on the garage so let's move to actual news stuff and it's going to be a new york heavy show because that's where you were um and yeah. you you got into the very exclusive lamborghini uh huracan performante I, my italian is uh non-existent so uh but anyway they had a dinner for their super fast you know around the nurburgring car and you got to see it yeah, there was you know a lot of the the Manhattan uh, beautiful people and affluent people there, um, a, a few uh, a few media to uh, take some pictures of the thing and and write some words about it. And you know, I mean, for the for the most part, um, you know, the the Huracan Performante, you know, less weight, more power. You know, it's a fairly typical. You know, when once you've had you know once you've had one of these supercar models on the road for a couple of years, you know you start doing these special editions, you know, to tweak them and make them a bit faster. Um, but the there's one particular technical element of uh, this car that I thought was really interesting, and that is the uh, the active aerodynamic system that they incorporated into it, uh, which is claimed to really help the performance on the track, especially. Um, you know, we've, we've all seen the, the photos of this thing, you know, over the last few months running on the Nürburgring. Uh, and now, you know, you get the photos of the production car. Uh, it's got, you know, big, massive rear wing on the back. But when you look more closely at the wing, you, there's some interesting details about it. The, the two struts that hold up this wing at the, the base of the struts, at the, the front uh, base of the struts, there's actually an opening on each one of these. The struts themselves are hollow. Uh, and there's a there's a, a flap uh, covering an opening at the front of these. So under normal conditions, the flap is closed and you get normal airflow over the, the wing generating downforce. Um, so when you're when you're cornering, uh, you know, you want to get maximum downforce. You know, this thing, it, they didn't say how much downforce it generates, but, you know, it's probably fairly substantial. Um but of course, you know, downforce is the enemy of, of top speed because it, you know, along with downforce comes drag. So what they did was, um, you know, said the, the, the struts are hollow 
And if you look on the underside of the wing, there's a series of slats um, openings on the, the underside of the airfoil uh, all the way across. Uh, and uh, when, when the car is going in a straight line, going for maximum speed, they open up a couple of little flaps at the base of the struts, which allows the air to flow up through the struts, through the hollow wing, and then out through these slats along the, the underside of the wing. And what that does is it disrupts the airflow along the underside of the wing, which reduces the downforce, reduces the drag, and allows the car to have more top speed. So, okay, fair enough. Yep. I mean, there's been other other cars, you know, like the the McLaren P1 and and the Ford GT that have you know some active aerodynamics. You know, they, they have you know, or in the Bugatti Veyron, you know, you got a wing in the back that can tilt up and, you know, do act as an air brake and all this other nonsense. Um, but what's, what's really cool on this one is um, they're also doing aero vectoring. So um, what you can actually do is you can, they can selectively open the, the little trap door on one side of the, on one strut or the other uh, so that you can have lower downforce on one side of the wing than on the other. Uh, so when you're cornering, you can um, put more downforce on the inside wheel and you know get more traction on that inside wheel, which is naturally going to tend to lift up and um, you can get more grip as you go around the corner. And the, the fact that it's like, I mean, active arrow we've seen, but kind of dynamic active arrow, that's a new... Uh, sort of a new realm and I guess it stands to reason that it would it would come to market on a car like this uh overall with 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 this you know the Huracan Performante I'm I'm just having trouble like seeing how anything on it <laughs> is ever going to relate to any vehicle I'm ever going to own uh I guess that's kind of beside the point though well I mean you know we we have been seeing um some active aerodynamic stuff on mainstream vehicles over the last several years, uh, primarily in the form of the uh, uh, thermostatically controlled uh, grill shutters that you see on a lot of vehicles now. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the big sources of drag on most vehicles is the uh, the air intake for on the front for the cooling. You know, uh, you know, when you've got air flowing through the engine compartment, that generates a lot of drag. So on a lot of vehicles now, they, they have thermostatically controlled shutters behind the grill uh, so that when you're running it at higher speeds or, um, you know, if the if the engines, you know, if the temperatures are cool, if the ambient temperatures are cold, you can con you can close those shutters and it forces the air either you know over or under the vehicle uh, rather than allowing it to go through the engine compartment and it reduces uh, the effective um, uh, drag coefficient by by several points um, you know so that's one example of where we're seeing active aerodynamics used on on mainstream vehicles and you know something like this is i think certain you know we could certainly see similar types of applications, probably not to this extreme, you know, because you, you tend not to have, you know, so much downforce on most mainstream vehicles, but there's certainly ways that you could use something like this where you manage the airflow around the vehicle uh, using various devices to reduce drag, you know, under certain, under various conditions, 
you know, or or to generate more drag when needed. Uh, so there, there's definitely ways that similar, the same kind of technology could be applied for different uses. Yeah, uh, I guess that's true. And I guess the biggest news about this car that we just completely also did not cover is that it has the fastest production car lap time around the Nürburgring, which is says something absurd, like six well, minutes and whatever. It, it, you know, Lamborghini's claiming the fastest lap time, you know, six minutes and 52.01 seconds or something like that uh, for a production car. Um you know, the, the problem with all of these lap times is there's no standard for how they're run. Um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that they basically ran this thing on slicks to generate that time. Um, you know, they, you know, who, who knows, you know, what, what other tweaks they did to, you know, to get this, um, Jim Glickenhaus, you know, the, uh, the famous car collector and, and, uh, Builder of uh, some very interesting custom vehicles, uh, including his Ferrari P45 and and more recently uh, his SCG03, uh, has proposed putting together a, a, a formal competition at the ring, you know, and inviting all the manufacturers to come and run together, you know, and and basically have you know have it overseen, you know, sanctioned. Uh, you know, to make sure everybody's running on true production hardware, production tires and that sort of thing, uh, road, road legal tires, you know, to actually see who can generate the fastest time. Um, and we'll see if that happens. Um, I'm, I doubt most of these brands will actually want to go head to head with the others. You know, they they I think they prefer to do it the way they have been, where they can go out there and and make their claims, you know, that can't really be verified. Yeah. I mean, you, um, you want your kind of unmitigated nonsense to help sell your supercars. You don't exactly <laughs> you don't yeah. necessarily deal with like hard Defin- numbers. Defin- you definitely don't want mitigation. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So th- I'm sure that was a nice evening uh, <laughs> to spend with a Lamborghini. Uh, eh. But for, Oh, only, only, only man, the beautiful people <laughs> weigh down today. Yeah, well, it's not my, it's not my kind of scene. All right. Well, I'd, I'd rather just have the Lamborghini on a track. I can understand that. Yeah, maybe a nice lunch. I, I'd go for the Lamborghini on a track and a nice lunch. There you go. That sounds so car writer at this point. <laughs> I'm going to get like boxes of shrimp cocktail. <laughs> no, no, no. For, with a Lamborghini, you got to have some good pasta and a, oh, yeah. a, and a good tomato sauce. Well, no, but I'm, I'm assuming like so it's like the automotive writer version of a, a glitter bomb, right? You just, you know grab a bag of frozen shrimp and put it inside a box and send it to someone you don't like (laughs) by the time it gets there it's all thawed and disgusting don't nobody please nobody do that to me uh, <laughs> all right but you actually went to the show at but the if Jazz. you want to yeah. you know just let, let me know and i'll give you dan's address fantastic um the so you went to the show at the javits in new york and you saw the buick enclave you saw it did you know, there's uh, stuff you wanted to talk about with Cadillac Super Cruise as well. Um, and you did some interviews with some folks. So where where should we where should we pick well, up let, here? Let's let's start with the Lincoln Navigator. Get that one out of the way. OK, um, you know, we, we we saw a Navigator concept last year in New York, uh, which had big, massive gullwing doors and in typical, um, you know, concept car style. You know, so, you know, and and just, uh, you know, a little comment on that. You know, one of the reasons why, um, you know, concept cars often have, you know, either rear hinged suicide doors or gullwing doors is they, the designers do this so that they can show off the interior of the vehicle basically uninterrupted. 
you know, they they know that they can they almost never are able to put this sort of thing in production because it's too heavy, too expensive, too complex, too unreliable. Um, all of the above, but they do it for, you know, for one off concept cars so they you know, they can showcase the interior of the vehicle you know, for photography. And so the, the, the people at the show can, can see what's going on in there. They can show off um, the one-off concept car interior of the one-off concept car. <laughs> exactly. Um, although, you know, aside from those doors, the, the production navigator actually translated remarkably closely from that concept, including a lot of the interior elements. I mean, you know, the interior is really beautifully executed. Um, and they did a, a amazingly good job on the exterior as well. Um, you know, translating, you know, Lincoln's new design language to, you know, this big ginormous full-size SUV. Um, and, you know, like it's uh, sibling, the, the expedition, it's got an aluminum body on a, on a high strength steel uh, frame, um, 3.5 liter um, second generation EcoBoost V6. Although they don't, Lincoln is no longer using the EcoBoost branding, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and I had a chance to talk with Earl Lucas, who uh, was the lead exterior design manager uh, for the Navigator. And let's drop in that uh, interview right here. All right. So, kind of, what was what was the overall goal in, in the exterior design of the Navigator? Well. You can obviously you can see that uh, you know the most premium attribute that the Navigator has is the scale and being accommodated for the entire entourage, right, the entire family. So really, what we wanted to do was just dial up some of the elegance, more elegance on the car. Uh, it's the first product that you've seen SUV-wise that has you know the larger front end on it that, that that's reminiscent of the signature grille, signature face that we put on Continental. Now the Navigator is the first one to have it on an SUV. So really, what we've done is making sure we kept all the human surface language, right? To make sure that the sections are softer. Uh, we're trying to seduce our customers with our surface language versus attacking them. If you look at the competitive set, they have a lot of hard, blocky type surfaces, but we steered away from that. because more, It's more organic. It's more organic. That's a, listen, why don't you say, I should have just said that from the beginning. It's more organic. Uh, but really, it's a big deal because usually when a two-box construction or uh, SUV style, the surfaces are always hard, but in our case, we've done it much more seductive. It's another important thing that we've done too, uh, the chrome appointments. There are, there's a chrome aileron that's in the lower grille that actually ties to the side, that ties to the rear. And really what it does is talks about the harmony of design. So all the elements, of course, are working together to bring together the vision of Navigator. When you go to the side profile, there are a number of horizontal elements. We've tried to emphasize the horizontal in every view, whether it be the front view, the side view, or the rear. And really what that does, that helps mitigate how tall the car is. It is a tall car, uh, but... We but should. the combination of the, like the chrome along the bottom of the, the, the side yeah, glass right. and, and the, the black pillars and everything it kind of stretches it out longitudinally instead of vertically. Listen, once again, you should just do this, man. <laughs> you, you got it. You better said a better idea. And, and we have this DLO that's a unifying graphic. So, like you were saying, the glass graphic doesn't. It's not interrupted with a color break, right? It is. It is glass all the way from the A pillar all around the entire car. Another thing that's really important to me about the exterior is really some of the details. And let's just talk about the wheels. The road wheels look like turbines, right? And of course, um, 
it's a reference to this whole effortless travel that Kumar talked about. And really what that has to do is that we're trying to make sure that we're risking our customers off to better tomorrows, but we're doing it in a much more, you know, aviation kind of inspired, nautical theme kind of inspired kind of way. Uh, and then the version that you're looking here, Sam, is the uh, black label, right, version. And this is the Yacht Club theme when you saw the interior. Very reminiscent of the color we showed for the concept car last year in New York. Uh, this is called uh, Chroma Crystal Blue. Uh, the show car color was called Storm Blue. They're close. Uh, but he we was a little bit darker, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the, yeah. the concept car was just a tad bit darker. Uh, but actually, we use that word storm to kind of indicate that, you know, we're brewing something. There's something, some change is about to happen, right? Uh, and the way you do that, of course, in nature is a storm. And then better tomorrows come. Uh, so we've done the same thing a little bit. We've matched that same hero color combination here. I don't know if you had a chance to see some of the lit elements. Uh, the DRL, we have this uh, lit aileron shape that's here, right? Uh, yeah, we saw that in the teaser photo that was released yeah. yesterday. Yeah, so, so the Continental had one element, and this one, of course, has two, right? Because Navigator is that much more bigger, right? Right, taller, and, you know, so. You've got a different proportion, yeah. totally different proportion. But the thing to note, too, is that we've removed the turn signal from the lamp itself. The turn signal is a separate element. And what that does is, so now when the DRL is wrong, and now they, they just put the Lincoln Embrace on for you. But what that does is when you do the turn signal, the DRLs do not go off. They stay okay. on, right? Uh, and so there's never, I don't know if you've seen some of the competitors when they turn, it looks odd that the lamp goes off. Right. Right? Well, lamps stay on in this case, in this case. Right. I mean, was that was that the driving factor for separating the two, um, or was it more you just you wanted the, the aesthetic, well, different we, aesthetic? Well, we wanted to have a separate element, right? Uh, but that was an added benefit, to be fair. Okay. Uh, and, and we've used it because it does help us differentiate from some of the competitors that are out there. But, you know, there is uh, requirements and stuff that you have to do to make sure that that lamp has a certain amount of distance so that you can keep the DRL on. Uh, but we were able to do it. But we've always wanted to have another design element to complicate, you know, the complement, I'm sorry, complement the larger scale element to the thinner scale element, right? So just to kind of, and also break up some of the mass that you have in front of you sure. in this car too. And what, one of the other details that, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm mistaken, but um, is this the first Lincoln with a light up grill, uh, light up star in the grill? Well, I believe the Continental, the Continental, Continental was the first one to have oh, okay. it. But this one has it as well. You can get it as an option on the uh, Reserve Series, but it comes standard, I believe, on uh, Black Label. On Black Label, right? And um, will the Navigator still be available in two wheelbase lengths as it was before, or is it just the longer one? Well, right now we're talking about the short wheelbase, so okay. I'll leave it at that, Sam. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. All right. Great. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I believe that. I think, I think to be honest with you, oh, I will give you some dimensional things about this car versus today's car. Uh, the wheelbase on this particular Navigator is around three and a half inches longer, right? But the overall length uh, is only longer by, I think, two and a half inches. Okay. All right, so it's comparable to today's car, but that extra length in wheelbase gives you that much easy access. Especially to the in the rear seat, you got third it. row, yeah. Right, second and third row gives you greater ease, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I should say this and, and the independent rear suspension is also a big aid, um, or especially for the third row, because yes, that's one of the issues with some of the competitors. Um, you know, they have a, a beam axle, and so you have to have a higher floor, so that makes it much, much less it. comfortable in that third row. You got it. Yeah. You got it, as well as giving you a better ride too, right? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I think the I think the biggest thing for us though aesthetically is you're noticing. Uh, you know, we're dialing up the elegance of all our Lincoln products, right? Not to say that we didn't have elegance before, but a concerted effort to make sure all the lines work harmoniously together. Uh, we've talked about doing things coast to coast, so you'll see one theme line that goes from the front all the way to the rear. Uh, like I said, maximizing the horizontal planes uh, on every view. And when you get to the rear, you'll see that that tail lamp is full width, maximizing the horizontal, right? Sure. And that's all about trying to capture this American landscape, you know, big city, you know, big American landscape. And we're just, you know, this is the, the appropriate, you know, uh, travel companion, if you will, exploring all those different types of environments. Okay. Yeah. Great. So uh, the Navigator, I, I think, honestly, it looks really, really good in pictures. Uh, it almost actually looks smaller than it probably is, proportion-wise. I don't know how it works in person. Um you know, their new design language has translated nicely to this vehicle. Um, uh, is it still getting some of that criticism for being maybe slightly bland or derivative? Um, I didn't hear, you know, the, you know, bland or derivative uh, used much uh, in the context of this vehicle. Um, certainly not uh, to the degree we did with the, uh, the Continental. Um I think, you know, the the one complaint I heard from a couple of people and I think is, is somewhat valid is the uh, the new Lincoln Grille, um, it, you know, on on this giant SUV, you know, it didn't see, you know, it, it the, the, the whole face of the thing, you know, just looks massive, which it is. I mean, well, it's, yeah. a, it's a very large vehicle. It's supposed to uh, be. <laughs> yeah. Problem, but, problem solved. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, aside from that, um, you know, everybody was, was pretty positive about this thing. And, you know, the, like I say, the interior was beautifully executed. Um, and, um, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it's going to do pretty well in the marketplace. Well, it is nicely executed. One of the things that I like about it is just, there's a high level of attention to detail. Uh, even just the way that that grill is, it's got, you know, a nice sort of bevel on its, the, the surrounding sheet metal. So it's not just like this just big squared off thing that they, on the edge of the hood you know it, it looks a little bit more thoughtfully integrated than that um you know i'm not sure that they're ever going to make the navigator outsell an escalade <laughs> or anything like that but it's it, it at least you know it has a presence um partially because it's brand new but also it just you know it, it looks like it's been designed with that in mind instead of just looking like sort of a you know prettied up um expedition well you know and um, both the expedition and the navigator uh, continue to have one really important advantage that I don't think gets talked about enough uh, with these particular vehicles compared to the GM uh, full size utilities. And that's the, uh, the independent rear suspension. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 re the, um, the navigator and expedition are the only ones of, of Ford's big trucks that have an IRS system on there. Um, and the reason they put that on there is, you know, when you've got independent rear suspension, you can put in a lower floor because you don't have to account for the entire axle moving up and down. You know, the, the differential is stationary when you've got an independent rear uh, versus a solid you know, beam axle like you've got in the GM utilities. Um, so on the GMs, you, have, you know, if you look inside uh, in the third row, the floor kicks up. You know, yeah. below the you know, by the by the third row seat uh, and you 
you have a lot less foot and leg room uh, back in that third row. It's just a, a much less comfortable place to sit uh, for passengers back there. And the, um, the Lincoln and the Ford have a, a pretty substantial advantage in that third row area in terms of seating comfort. So, you know, if, if it, you know, for anybody that needs to, to haul around extra people and uses that third row on a regular basis, that's, that's definitely something to consider. Well, not only that too, it, it uh, improves the ride and handling as well, especially the ride. Yeah. You know, you get, yeah, a, well, yeah, the, the ride, the ride comfort, you know, is definitely better. You know, I mean, handling, you know, you're only going to get so much handling out of a two and a half ton <laughs> SUV. <laughs> They'll surprise you though. They will. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how good, you know, you can make something like that. Um, all right, well, let's move to the next thing you had a chance to do an interview for. Um, you talked to uh, Barry Walkup, who is Cadillac Super Cruise uh, chief engineer. And so in this time of ever expanding autonomy and lots of talk, uh, like after our podcast last week, I saw it's like three or four articles about how, you know, super cheap LiDAR sensors are right on <laughs> right on the, the, the edge of, of being here. Uh, yeah, well, actually, uh, just this morning, there was an announcement um, of, uh, Velodyne, uh, announcing their, uh, solid state LIDAR sensors, which are supposed to go into production in 2018, uh, at least in, in initial production for, uh, development, you know, for, um, testing purposes, uh, and sampling for the, their manufacturer, for their, uh, car maker customers. Um, and Velodyne is the company that's been doing most of the LIDAR, uh, for most of the, the, uh, prototype, uh, autonomous vehicles that are out there including uh fords uh, ford ford and baidu last year both invest each invested 75 million dollars into velodyne and uh, so you know i think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how their their solid state lidar solution works uh compared to some of the systems from quantergy and ibeo and, and other manufacturers but um yeah the, the cadillac super cruise um is, is interesting because it's uh it's the first system um you know, driver assist system, it's, it's, you know, it's probably the closest we've gotten yet to a level three a semi-autonomous system um, because it's actually, you know, they're, they're, they're actually saying it is a hands-off system. You know, so you can drive it with your hands off the wheel. You don't have to, you know, keep touching the wheel every few seconds, you know, to make sure, you know, so that it can make sure that you're still there and still alive and paying attention. Um, and the reason why they're able to do that is because uh, Cadillac has actually incorporated a driver monitoring system in this in this vehicle, uh, as well as a bunch of other uh, cool things. Uh, there's an infrared camera on top of the steering column that's watching the driver's face and making sure the driver is you know still attentive and looking in the general direction of the road and and uh, you know is is ready to take over. Uh, but let's let's run the interview with Barry uh, and. Um, he can explain all of the the cool features that they've put in there. Record for posterity. All right. So Super Cruise is the first hands-free driving experience. It's going to be introduced on the 2018 Cadillac CT6 later this, this year. Okay. And, you know, um, you guys have been working on this for quite a long time. Yeah. And um, what, what have you done differently from other manufacturers? Yeah, so three key areas. One is the steering wheel light bar that you see to communicate to the driver whether the car is driving or whether you need to take control of it. Second is an infrared uh, camera that we put on top of the cam on top of the steering column. 
and that tracks head motion to make sure that the driver is looking at the road. So we don't we don't ask you to touch the steering wheel or put a torque into the steering wheel to respond to to uh, you know uh, a look away time. We just do that with a glance toward the uh, road, and then we've incorporated the industry first lidar based map. So we actually have added a, a, a technology safety feature that is a map which allows us to look further down the road than the camera or, or the radars. Okay. So um, I, I don't know if you can say, you know, what the source, you know, who, who provides your, your mapping data. So that. so we have a joint venture um, with a company that we did all of it ourselves. So it's, okay. it's, we don't, it's not a purchase map at that point. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting. I mean, you know, obviously there's a few big companies that do most of the mapping for most of the industry, TomTom Tom, here. Right. Um, this is our own proprietary map. Okay. Yeah. So, so no one else has access to this map. Okay. And so, you know, what we did is we LIDAR scanned 160,000 miles of highway, interstate highway in, in uh, the U.S. and Canada. And so uh, we took that, and we have up to five centimeters accuracy with that map. We took that, put it into a 3D model, and then generated a map out of it and put that map into the car. So it's a redundant sensor. Essentially, it's... Uh, uh, it adds to the camera and the radar, and they all have to agree that you're in the same place and driving in the same lane and cars going down the road. Okay. So as far as the, um, the, the sensor technology you're using on the car itself for, for Super Cruise, is that um, basically the, the radar and, and camera that you would normally use for ACC and That's the lane right. keeping? Exactly, yeah. So we have uh, four cameras on the car. We have one in the front, two on the sides, and one in the rear. Okay. Then we have ultrasonic uh, sensors around short-range radars, essentially, for things like parking assist, side blind zone alert, those types of things. We have a uh, front long-range radar so that we can track vehicles ahead of you for the active cruise control. And then if you add in the map module, we actually have a running map of the road that you're on. Okay. Um, the, uh, the cameras, the, the side and, and rear cameras, are those, are, is the, the visuals from those, are, is that also incorporated into your control system for Super Cruise? Yeah, we, we, so it's not just a we observe those as signals, you? right? Okay. So, yeah, we, they're good for positioning the car in the lane. Okay. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I, guess, Here, uh, I, can, I can hang out here. Stuff. Stuff. Uh, that's, that's fine. To... That's fine. Um, so the um, the where where you can actually engage Super Cruise, like will the, will the, the car t give you an indication of saying you know say Super Cruise is available now or how, yeah. how's that how's that going to work? So it's practice? got we have a steering wheel that comes up onto the cluster and similar on the uh, opposite side of where the active cruise setting would be. Mm -hmm. When you see that grayed out steering wheel, that means Super Cruise is available. You push a button on the on the steering wheel here in the center, and then the light bar turns green and the car is driving down the road. So as you're driving down the road, I mean, you know, driver can glance around right. time to time, uh, but as long as as long as the camera indicates that for the most part they're engaged, exactly. you know, and they're not, you know, they're not looking down at their phone or something like exactly, that, yeah. and it'll allow it to keep going. And if if the camera detects that. Um, that the driver is not engaged, then what happens? So then the, the steering bar will start to flash green mm -hmm. to help train the driver, hey, you can look away for this amount Strictly of time. Strictly visual? Yeah. Okay. Strictly visual. So it basically says, hey, you need to look back at the road. And then after a period of time, if you don't look back at the road, it'll turn to red, and you'll get a chime or a haptic in the seat, which you can choose from the, uh, the vehicle control center whether you want the chime or the haptic. Okay. And then after that, 
you know, that continues to escalate, the vehicle will then begin to coast if you, if over an extended period of time, you still don't take control, we'll begin to break, and then we'll have an audio prompt of a woman's voice that says, please take control. If you continue to not take control, we'll actually turn the flashers on, stop the vehicle, contact OnStar, and send emergency response in case you've had a heart attack or say you're right. at a diabetic episode, something like that. So. I mean, how, how much time are we talking about from when it first detects that you're not uh, attentive to when the car would actually come to a stop? Yeah, it depends on the speed of the car, but, it, uh, you know, we're talking up to a minute in that time frame. Okay, so it's a relatively short period of time. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's long, long obviously, in terms of what can happen during that time on the if road. If you're going but, 70 miles an hour, a minute yeah. is a long time. That's true, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and then what about uh, I, what I, a previous discussion I had with Dave, um, we talked about uh, you're incorporating the active rear steer as right. part of the Super Cruise package as, yeah. a, as an extra safety measure. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what, what you're doing there? Well, we wanted to use all of the systems on the car. So it's a failed operational system similar to a modern jet airliner. Mm -hmm. And so we can actually use the rear steer to control the car should the front steer fail. So we've got redundancies built in for steering. We've got redundancies built in for power supply. We have an ultra capacitor that will actually allow the car to continue down the path for five seconds, which is the amount of time that it takes to regain control, drop your task, grab the wheel, regain control of the vehicle. So we have uh, two control modules. If one fails, the other one runs the car. Are they two, uh, full, like two identical? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we have redundant sensors, so if the camera fails, the map will continue to allow you five seconds to be able to control the car. The radar is another redundant sensor, so okay. everything has a, a backup, essentially. Um, what about uh, V2V? I mean, you just launched V2V on the CTS. Is that going to be included uh, on the CT6 as so well? So V2V uh, is in the CT6, but it's not a signal that we use for Super Cruise. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you're not doing anything uh, like the cooperative adaptive cruise control that Toyota la launched in Japan in uh, late 2015? Not yet. Okay. Is that something that you're looking at doing at some point? We're or? always looking at how to explore new technologies, right? You okay. Know, there's lots of ways to get creative with software. So, sure. Yeah. Um, if it adds safety and customer convenience, you know, we're, we're taking a look at it. Uh, any other, um, I guess that's the, the camera there? Yeah, the camera yeah, yeah, that's the hood for the infrared. Yeah, yeah, and then right it's there. got IR emitters right. right here. Yeah, and then the camera. Okay. Yes. Um, any other safety features that you've added in, um, you know, in the course of bringing this from development to production capable? Well, so three things that the industry currently doesn't have is we only allow it on limited access freeways. We geofence geo it out. Uh, we have the infrared camera, so we can track your face. We can. We want you to keep looking at the road, right? There are things that we can't predict uh -huh. that could happen, and we need you to be engaged in driving. This is a convenience feature. You can right. take your hands off of it. It's not full autonomous. The third is the LiDAR-based map. Allows us to see further down the road than any of the sensors on the vehicle, uh -huh. so we can predict things like toll booths ahead. You know, sure. We don't want to. We don't want to navigate through a toll booth. Um, so we'll escalate back well in advance of the toll booth, and you can manually drive through it. Okay. Um, uh, lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, You're talking about safety features yeah, and what's different uh, from us. You know, the other piece of it, 
the other layer of safety that we have is OnStar. Right. And, you know, you think of over, there's a really good tech story around over the course of however many years it's been that OnStar. 20 years. How many lives that has saved, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a good there's a good news article and piece about, you know, why wouldn't everyone be doing OnStar? Why wouldn't everyone be doing infrared cameras and LiDAR base maps? So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. That's, uh, I can't wait to try this out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And Dave and I were talking. This is really the first time that any vehicle has been able to help an unresponsive driver. Yeah. If you think about it, you die in your car, you just crash your car. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the ability to help someone. Which, right. Which I think is, you know, it's game-changing, really. Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that's a critically important feature. Oh, I, I know where, where I wanted to what I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, I, when when Mary Barr first announced in 2014 that we we're going to launch Super Cruise, mm -hmm. and she talked about doing it, you know, last year 2016, right? And um, you know, it got delayed, and you know, I understand it, you know, because you went back and reviewed the safety case around it and, and added some extra capabilities to ensure that it was going to be safe. I mean, what what drove that? Um, if you if you can talk about it at all, I mean, you know what what um, what what elements of this were added as part of that review, and you know what 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 was the driving force behind that? Well, safety was always the driving force behind the system. So we were going to convince ourselves that we were safe enough to to roll it out. We really didn't work toward a deadline. We worked toward let's convince ourselves that it's safe and it's customer pleasing. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be annoying. We don't want to be flash and chiming all the time. Uh, so. Once we felt that we had that, there's a lot of invention, right? The LiDAR-based mapping. Think of deploying trucks to map 160,000 miles of road. That's a pretty big task. Is that just in the U.S. or North America? It's all, it's uh, U.S. and Canada. Okay. So, yeah. And then, and if you think about the uh, infrared camera, so that's something the industry hasn't done before. We had to invent an algorithm to be able to, to track the head and determine whether it was looking on-road and off-road and different ethnicity types, bearded, long hair. There are some, actually, there are some sunglasses that will filter out infrared light, so we had to work around that if we couldn't see the eyes. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of engineering that had to be done on the car. To Especially if you want to make it robust, you know, exactly, so that yeah. it's not, so that it's not going to just, you know, right. disengage randomly and be more annoying to a customer than, That's right. than helpful. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we've been making cars for a hundred years. We know how to validate a car, right? So we're going to drive every mile of road that we have, make sure that the, that the car is, is available, that it, you know, is safe to drive. We've got a, I think you're familiar with our process and, We've got vehicle technical specs that we have to meet long before we ever ride on the road. And then for each of the components, we'll have feature technical specs that are, you know, if you want to produce a camera for General Motors, it's got to meet these requirements. It's not just a purchase system that we buy off the shelf. It's here's the statement of requirements. If you can't meet that, we'll go to you know, someone else. Okay. So all that takes time, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, but it's finely tuned engineering is at the end of it is what you get. Yeah. Okay. Well, it looks uh, it looks like a, an impressive system. Uh, I guess, oh, what one other thing I wanted to hit on. You know, um, have you? you know, has, has GM uh, been able to look at any data of 
how much you know their customers actually use some of the ADAS features and um, th- th- things like ACC and the lane keeping and yeah because um, I know you know with with a lot of systems especially the lane keeping in right. particular it. Um, a lot of times, you know, they, they're overly sensitive, you know, they're more annoying than helpful. And I was wondering if, if, that, if that's something that uh, you've looked at, um, you know, whether you've been able to get any telemetry data through OnStar or, or just, you know, maybe recording some customers' cars to see what they're doing, how they're using it, and, you know, has that influenced how you calibrated this system? Yeah, so we don't actually harvest data from vehicles, um, you know, just random vehicles. But we do that in our development process, right? We have a cross-section across the company that, that we'll all agree on torque inputs or noises, what the sound's like. We have marketing input. We have design input. You know, what the colors on the you know, dash look like, the, the amber line versus the green lines on the lane keep assist. Versus, you know, so we do all that tuning. And then for this system, we also did uh, clinics. So we understood, like, for example, in clinics, lane change, active lane change, ranked really low. So the customer said, yeah, it's nice to have, but we really don't care. We want to be able to drive this system, take our hands off on the freeway, Uh so we can explore the navigation system, or we can place a hands-free phone call, drink a cup of coffee, eat a cheeseburger, whatever you want to do. So that was what guided us, you know, to the customer. Um... One, one of the areas, I mean, you know, I'm fortunate to get to drive a lot of different cars, and one of the areas that I've noticed is problematic on most cars with lane-keeping systems is detection of the lane markings, you know, right. especially when it's just a single camera, single forward-facing camera. Um, they're very inconsistent in terms of when they can detect lanes. Like, just for example, just a week ago, I was driving a new BMW 5 Series, right. and uh, you know, their, their lane-keeping system is a sort of semi-lane-centering system. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was driving along 696, and I was coming back from, I went to Cars and Coffee one morning, and yeah. from, going there and coming back, and I was driving east-west, yeah. um, you know, in the morning with the sun, you know, either behind or in front of me. Yeah. It was able to pick up the lane markings pretty pretty reliably. Yeah. But when I went north-south on 275, right. it basically, you know, the, it was always grayed out. It was not detecting the lane markings. Yeah. Does the use of the side cameras as an input, as a signal into your system, did that... Did that help with making your detection of the lanes more reliable? Or? No, we use those as a secondary input. Okay. So we still use the front camera as a main input. So, you know, we'll still experience sun washout, which is what you're describing. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, mono cameras are susceptible to that. Um, are stereo cameras more reliable? Yeah, in stereo that cameras is, 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 a, is a higher resolution image. Yeah. So... But what what you what you experienced was probably, um, and I'm familiar with those areas where you get you get poor lane markings due to tar strips or you know there's been some repair or that this and that and it depends on the more sensors you have, the more you can weight other things right. If you lose uh, some confidence in the camera, you can check in with the radars. There's still a car in front of me. Can I follow it? If you lose you know if you lose the radar, you can still use the camera. You can weight them differently. And we also have the addition of the map which allows another layer of safety that no one else has. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pleasure. So that Super Cruise, um, that one actually will be interesting to try out. So we'll, we'll see what it's like when it, when it arrives in uh, the hands of completely unskilled auto riders. Maybe it'll make us better drivers. <laughs> um, I doubt it. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but you also uh, talked with uh, a couple of uh, Buick 
folks, uh, Bob Boniface and Rob Peterson, about the uh, new Enclave, which is sort of the, the other big thing that GM debuted at New York. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the Enclave is, um, you know, the, the first generation Enclave was really probably the, the vehicle that saved the Buick brand in North America. I think it took them by uh, surprise, too. Yeah, I mean, no, nobody was really expecting it to be as successful as it was. And, you know, it, it was, you know, it was a big hit when it launched in 2007. And, uh, you know, when GM went through their bankruptcy in 2009, you know, there were a lot of people that wanted GM to dump Buick along with Pontiac and Saturn and Hummer and Saab and uh, what else, uh, whatever other brands they, they ditched uh, at that time. And, you know, the, the reason why they kept Buick alive was because they were selling so many vehicles in China. Um, and, you know, the brand itself was actually quite profitable because of those sales in China. But even then, you know, you could have easily made the case that, uh, you know, you could keep Buick around for China, but dump it in, in uh, North America. Uh, but probably the, the the best reason to keep it in North America was because of the success of the Enclave. Uh, it, it really helped to revive the Buick brand. You know, and now they've added a couple more uh, utility or crossovers to their lineup with the Envision, the midsize Envision and the compact Encore. But the Enclave is still the, the heart of the brand today. Uh, and, you know, they just uh, launched the uh, the 2018 Enclave in New York last week. It's their um, the third of their uh, their Lambda series of SUVs. And the other the other thing that they've continued with the Enclave that they started last year with the uh, Acadia when they launched the second generation GMC Acadia was putting more differentiation into the three uh, Lambda platform utilities. The the first generation ones all had almost exactly the same dimensions. They had the same wheelbase, same length, same width, same height, um, you know, just different styling to distinguish the the Chevy Traverse, the GMC Acadia and the uh, the Enclave. Um, this time, you know, they we we've talked previously about the Acadia being a foot shorter. Uh, the Traverse is almost exactly the same dimensions. Uh, I think it's like about an inch or two longer and a couple inches longer wheelbase uh, than the, the previous one. And the Enclave gets the same wheelbase as the uh, Traverse, but it's actually two inches lower than before. Uh, its roof line is two inches lower, so it's got a sleeker look to it. Uh, but let's uh, let's talk to uh, let's listen to Bob uh, Boniface, who's the uh, global exterior design director for Buick, and uh, Rob Peterson, who is the marketing manager for Buick uh, utility vehicles. All right, hit us. All right. Yeah. Here with Bob Boniface, uh, global ex exterior design director for Buick, and uh, Rob Peterson, marketing manager for just for the Enclave or for. All crossovers at Buick. All right, so we've just seen the, the new 2018 uh, Buick Enclave Avenir. Um, Enclave has probably been the most successful nameplate for Buick in North America over the last 10 years, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started in 2007, kind of defied logic. Uh, sales increase for uh, basically uh, eight of those 10 years that it's been out. And, um, you know, it's got a, a really strong following, great loyalty numbers. It does what it's supposed to do very well, and that is it carries families and it carries people and cargo, and it does it in a very luxurious manner. And talk about the design. What what you've done differently with the design this time around? Uh, you know, there's, there's clearly a, a lineage back to the first uh, uh, enclave, but 
it's, it's more modern. Yeah. Well, you know, Rob talked about the success of the current Enclave, and you know, it, one of the hardest things to do is follow up on a successful act. So we had to take the best of what made the previous Enclave so successful, which is spacious interior, ride quality, premium materials, sculptural beauty. So with the new car, we did a few things. We lengthened it about about, about two inches, lowered the roof about two inches, and lengthened the wheelbase two inches. And that pays dividends to the customer. The extra two inches of wheelbase increases, uh, improves ride quality, improves uh, rear seat leg room. We've improved the interior cargo capacity by, I think, 10 cubic feet. Aerodynamic performance is better. And frankly, from a design standpoint, when you look at the car, it's a little lower and leaner than it was before. It was always a beautiful car. Now it's just got a little bit more athleticism to it and uh, a little bit more sleek and a little bit more uh, premium and precise looking. And one of the one of the interesting things to note over the last year, you know, last year we saw the launch of the second generation GMC Acadia, and then later the, the Chevrolet Traverse, and now the, the Enclave. And all three of these, in their first generation, shared the same basic platform architecture, and they continue they continue to share an up, a new version of that platform architecture. But they're all much more different now, much more differentiated. We talk a little bit about what the strategies are, and how, how you've differentiated those three vehicles even more. Well, from a customer perspective, the uh, Enclave has always been much more about the family and what's on the inside. And so we needed to save the size. In, in fact, increase the size so that we have the cargo capability. We increased the powertrain uh, capabilities and now we have 5,000 pounds of towing. What we find in our current generation customers is that they're looking to be able to pull boats, uh, wave runners, summer things, things that they take along with them on vacations. Um, so we held our size from that, that perspective. GMC, which has a much more active customer, uh, went back more into the mainstream segment targeting the midsize SUV uh, family and so they've really been working hard in that particular space but having the differentiation from a customer perspective will really assist us greatly um, as we start to push forward and um, this new enclave marks the launch of the Avenir sub-brand for Buick what, tell, what is the strategy behind Avenir what are you trying to do with that well I mean we, we needed a uh, range topping uh, trim level and Buick is perfect brand for that I mean the customers appreciate materials premium materials premium ride quality premium detailing so Avenir has taken the best of when we when we launched the uh, Avenir show car and then last year again with the Avista show car we took the best design and detailing elements from those vehicles and applied them to our the top of our range specifically the grill texture the wings in the grill the lighting signature the wheels themselves the material on the interior uh, Enclave is the top of our range. It is our flagship, so we felt that our customer needed something above and beyond where we were even in the past. Yeah, and I think Bob touched on it. I mean, when we when we look at what um, customers define as luxury, um, today they're really looking at it from the perspective of time is, is what creates the greatest luxury. And so from an Enclave perspective, we have a lot of people that spend a great deal of time either with their families on short trips, medium-sized trips, or long trips, you know, just going up to school. What happens on the inside, we want to make sure that they have that fantastic luxury experience. And a lot of what Bob talked about, premium materials, pre, you know, the technologies that uh, allow people to stay focused on the road, uh, had, um, those types of technologies kind of create that uh, 
cocoon that allows them to get more into every moment that's in the car. And that's what really we're seeing from people, luxury buyers. It fits perfectly within the Buick brand. The Buick brand is kind of known as attainable luxury. Um, we think that we have a right package here for everybody to kind of uh, enjoy that. And it's, it's perfect for the brand. Yeah, Duncan talked a little talk during the presentation about um, you know, going into homes of, of current Buick buyers and, and buyers of competitive vehicles and observing what sorts of things, um, what sorts of lessons did you learn from that that have been applied to the to the new Enclave? And what how, how has that been uh, realized in this new vehicle? Well, we, um, we actually went into several homes early on in the program's development, and what we learned about um, our, our our customers of our current uh, current one is that um, uh, they define. Um, their purchases as luxurious because they're intuitive and they meet their needs. There's an element of style to it. There's an element of substance to it. Um, but it needs to be, it's much more about the ability to fit into their lifestyle than it is about showing off their lifestyle. And we really think that the Avenir in this perspective kind of meets that. Um, some of the things that you, you see on the inside that, again, Bob mentioned earlier, premium materials, quiet tuning technologies. These were all things that they they appreciated because it gave them an, an, um, an intangible benefit of being able to ha hang out with their families and friends inside the vehicle, knowing they had everything that they needed. You know, and the Buick owners are not badge wearers. They don't wear it on their sleeve. They love beauty. It's understated elegance. And they'll tell you, I bought the car because I love the way it looks. I love the way it makes it makes me feel. I love everything I see and touch. And so, you know, in addition to the functional aspect, you've got just, I like it. I like how it looks and I like how it makes me feel. And that's one of those intangibles that you, you won't get from a market research event. You have to actually talk to the customers in their homes to understand that. Where, where they use the vehicle. Yeah, where they use the vehicle. See how they yeah. use it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. All right. Well, so we should wrap up with our sort of last topic um and because we love to poke holes in tesla's uh <laughs> worldview uh they got sued today <laughs> over autonomous stuff yeah their uh second generation autopilot or autopilot 2.0 hardware um they uh when they launched it last fall uh they promised uh basically they launched it uh without any software to to drive it so um if you bought uh, a Model S or a Model X uh, from last fall um, with their second generation sensor suite, um, you didn't get any of the functionality that was available with the first one. So no adaptive cruise control, uh, no lean keeping, no auto steer, uh, none of the other cool stuff that had been part of autopilot for uh, a year and a half before that. And, uh, you know, they, you know, they explained that they were still working on the software and they would be rolling it out gradually over the, the next several months, uh, which they eventually did. And, you know, I think in, sometime in January, they rolled out an update that started to add some of the functionality back. And they've they've had a couple other updates since then. Um, but um, the system's not quite working nearly as well as the first generation system yet. Um, and uh, so uh, an enterprising um Law firm <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> yeah, somewhere in uh, in California, uh, filed a class action lawsuit in uh, the Northern District of California, uh, alleging that the new autopilot is essentially unusable and demonstrably dangerous. 
And, you know, as as is typical with Tesla, you know, we've seen Tesla drivers uh, record video uh, from their cars to demonstrate what their vehicles are capable of. And um, um, we've seen some of the cars with autopilot 2.0, um, you know, wandering around in the lane and actually drifting out of the lane and doing all kinds of uh, things that you would not expect such a system to do. Um, and uh at least at this point, uh, calling it demonstrably dangerous is probably not too much of a stretch. Um, you know, we'll we'll see what this you know how this lawsuit does. You know, Tesla certainly has tried to uh, cover their backside. You know, in their you know with lots of disclaimers. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, in their advertising for Autopilot 2.0, you know, saying that they'll they'll you know be releasing upgrades over time as it as it gets validated. Um, I think, you know, some of the stuff that they've already released probably uh, was not as well validated as it should have been from what I've seen. Uh, I haven't had a chance to drive one of the newer vehicles. And I guess uh, most uh, none, none of the media that I've talked to have had a chance to drive it yet either. They, they haven't had any. Uh, Tesla has not been loaning out any of these vehicles yeah. for, for evaluation. I mean, surprisingly yet, enough, so. they're, they're, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a little different where you are, but uh, there are no tesla press cars <laughs> out here oh yeah there aren't there aren't any here either the only time i've been able to get into a model s uh to drive one is when i've been out in california you know the tesla's been nice enough to uh, a couple of different occasions to loan me a car to evaluate uh both the, mo the model s before they launched autopilot and then uh another one uh last may when i was out there to try out one with autopilot and, you know, I, I wrote an article about it at the time. You know, I thought it was, you know, the original autopilot. And this was before the uh, the Joshua Brown crash in Florida. You know, it it was an excellent um, driver assist system, you know, probably the best one out there, uh, you know, most capable uh, that I had tried up to that point. You know, it was certainly not a self-driving car, as many people have described it. It's not autonomous, not even close, uh, but it was an excellent uh, driver assist system. Uh, but, you know, even uh, my our buddy Alex Roy, uh, you know, who's done lots of stuff with Tesla, you know, done several cross country country runs uh, with Tesla's, um, you know, using the uh, autopilot, you know, through most of the uh, the drive across the country. Um, he hasn't even been able to get his hands on a, an autopilot two car. yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that makes this lawsuit uh, more feasible is the way that. The autopilot, first of all, the calling it autopilot, which it's been pointed out. I'm not the first one to point that out. Um, that in and of itself may give a false impression of what the system can do. Uh, and and just also the way it's it's being portrayed. And, and Tesla's not the only one that's guilty of this. Mercedes uh, got whacked mm -hmm. as well for, you know, showing this stuff basically being, you know, a self-driving car and touting that as its feature. You know, you do a whole 30 second TV commercial uh, f around that feature and it, it can send the wrong impression. Um, you know, you make it look almost too easy or you don't put enough this, this sort of context around it. It really looks like self-driving cars are here, especially with all of the other sort of tertiary coverage around it. So, uh, you know, the war of words continues where Tesla's calling the lawsuit a disingenuous attempt to secure attorney's fees. Um, you know, and the truth is probably somewhere in between where, you know, Tesla system has deficiencies that are absolutely 
uh, easy to reproduce and uh, shouldn't really be there. And you've seen other automakers be a little bit more cautious in their approach. Uh, again, like, uh, right, like I was just going to say, like Super Cruise um, versus, you know, Tesla being a little bit more on the, the bleeding edge. And, uh, you know, Tesla owners are, are willing to to do that to a degree, too. They're, they're willing to put up with some of that um, beta tester <laughs> experience but it's you know it's going to be a real problem when they start to push further down market in in the model three that's that's uh coming as well if it's going to have these kind of features you know people in that price range just expect stuff to work you know they're they're not they're not going to be as tolerant and they're not going to understand that that's the position they're being put in um you know without without having a, a sort of like a more completely re-engineered system can it ever get to the can enhanced autopilot ever get to sort of fulfilling the promises that tesla's making for it uh no <laughs> in a word no um you know they you know elon musk has said that you know this autopilot 2 uh hardware uh system will eventually be capable of level five autonomy which is fully autonomous under all conditions and as it exists today yeah, and he said that you know the system that they're building today will eventually, you know, when they get the software updated, will eventually be capable of level five. Um, it it won't be because level five means it has to be able to be fully autonomous control under all weather and road conditions. Um, and you know the system they have today, you know, that relies, you know, it's got eight cameras, uh, one radar sensor, and twelve ultrasonic sensors. Um, even if, even if you could make it reliably work with just you know cameras and and radar like that <clears throat> and the ultrasonics, uh, which no one that I've talked to believes that that is going to be sufficient. Everyone else, everyone else is using lidar, uh, but even even if you could, the way that they've installed those cameras on there, there's nothing to keep those cameras clean. You know, and you know, you live you live in Boston. You know what happens, you know, with road yeah, salt. I, I have to clean my headlights. My head, like my my Volvo's yeah. had wipers. My cars, my my Jeep and my Crown Victoria don't. So I have to like manually stop and clean them. So right. I mean, you know, you gotta you gotta clean that that crust of salt that builds up on there after a few minutes of driving. You know, when you come home at night from the office, or you know, when you get you know before you leave the office or whatever. Um, you know, there's going to be a, a crust of salt that the light can't, you know, can barely get through. And, uh, you know, cameras need to be able to see through those lenses. Um, and, you know, it doesn't even with LIDAR, you know, with LIDAR, you still have to be able to see the, the LIDAR, the lasers still have to be able to get through the, the lenses. They've got to be kept clean. And if, uh, you know, whether it's salt or dust uh, or, you know, whatever it might be, um, there, there needs to be some mechanism to keep them clean. And Tesla does not have that, which means that this will not be, a, a this will not ever be a system capable of level five autonomy period. Yeah. At best it will be level four. Well, so what uh, is there any production system currently that is even, you know, got the architecture in place to, to be level five or is that just, I mean, that seems to me like there's, no. there's nothing even on the horizon that's going to be able to do that. There, there's nothing there's nothing in production today that is capable of that you know their their manufacturers are aware of that problem they're they're working on solutions uh, a couple of weeks ago I was at the SAE World Congress and I um, sat down with um, Tammy Meehan from 3m 
uh, you know, and they're, you know, they're working on some things to try to mitigate the the problem. You know, so they're, they're working with manufacturers to come up with solutions, you know, so that they're working on things like uh, coatings for the lenses um, you know, that, you know, both that would can be tinted that still allow the sensors to work, um, you know, but so that the sensors can be blended into the, the shape of the car, you know, so they're not as obtrusive. Um, but then also, you know, to put uh, various types of hydrophobic coatings on there or, or coatings that would repel and, you know, keep anything from sticking to it. Um, so that's that's one part of it. Uh, you know, I've seen um, from Waymo, uh, you know, they're working on a system with a wiper. Uh, that would re- retract or that would extend out from the roof to clean off the uh, the lidar dome that's on the top of the vehicle and then retract back into the roof again. Um, you know, and I've seen similar types of you know I've seen wiper systems from other companies that they're they're working on. So you know, and there's things like you know um, heating the lenses. You know, that would at least take care of slush. Uh, it's not necessarily going to take care of of salt spray uh, or dust. Uh, but you know, they're, they're trying, they're, they're working on solutions and it's, it's going to be a while before they have something viable. Um, but everybody knows that that's something they're going to have to incorporate in these systems before they can really be called autonomous. Yeah. And I mean, Apple, you know, is jumping back in apparently according to some of the news too. So it's, it's going to continue to be, um, an exciting period of time for us to see how driving is going to evolve and they're going to take the control away from us and give it to the robot overlords. And at that point, um, you know, perhaps I've chosen the right pill, red or blue. I don't know. We'll see. One <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, of each. Sure. Why not both? Um, we got an email question uh, that we can wrap up the show with. Uh, yeah, we got an email. And we've we've also gotten a couple of uh, tweets uh, in the time that we've been recording this that we can touch on as well. Right. <laughs> so um, let's start with the uh, the email question. Okay. Uh which was uh, from Isaac uh, asking uh, and uh, thanks for Isaac for, for listening and, and uh, I'm glad, glad you're enjoying the show. Um, and um, he, he's got a question. He's got a, a Dodge Dart. Basically his question relates to um, turbocharged engines. Um, so he's got a 2013 Dodge Dart with the, uh, the multi-air turbo, the, the uh, which is the Fiat 1.4 liter uh, turbo four cylinder and a six speed manual. And uh, he said he likes everything about the car except the drivetrain. <laughs> uh, I don't like I don't like to use the word hate, but I hate the engines. Uh, I hate this this engine with a fiery passion. To me, it's a modern day iron puke. Uh, I owned a Fiero with an iron duke, so I can attest to that horrid experience. Herein lies my question. Have you guys driven other FCA products with the multi-air turbo? If so, do they all suck as much as the Dart? Uh, the engine is supposed to be rated at 160 horsepower, 184 pounds feet of torque, but the thing feels like it only makes 120 and 100 foot pounds of torque on a good day. And uh, second part of it is uh, the Dart is the only modern turbocharged engine uh, that he's driven compared to other modern turbo engines. Do they feel more lively and responsive from a cold start? Uh, as Dart feels like it's running on two cylinders before the engine reaches operating uh, temperatures. Curious how other modern turbo engines behave at low temperatures. What is the drivability like? Um, you know, I mean, for me, I, I've been fortunate to drive a lot of different modern turbocharged engines from a lot of different manufacturers, and um, I've almost universally really liked them. Um, you know, modern direct injected turbos um, 
you know, have been able to eliminate most of the classic turbo problems with turbo lag uh, and poor low end torque, um, you know, because the the direct injection, you know, acts as a as a charge cooler. So it enables um, the engineers to use uh, higher compression ratios, higher boost um, and generate a lot of, uh, you know, really strong low end torque um, and, and a broad flat torque curve. Uh, that makes the engine feel like a much larger engine. That said, the um, I've I've driven two different uh, vehicles with this 1.4 liter turbo uh, that that Isaac has in his Dart. Um, I've driven the Fiat 500X and um, the um, 500 Abarth, uh, and I was less impressed with the engine in the Abarth in the 500 really? Abarth. Yeah, huh. um, that one, the, the one I drove was an automatic. Oh, I can see why then. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think the automatic sapped a lot of the life out of that engine, strangely enough. I mean, generally with an engine like that, you know, it actually should work better with an automatic. But um, it just, it did not seem, it seemed to make a lot of noise, but not a lot of, uh, not have a lot of real energy to it. Um, so I wasn't, I was actually surprisingly unimpressed with that car. The uh, the 500X, I actually thought it was really good. I, I had no issues with it in that one. Granted, I drove that in the uh, in the summertime. Uh, so, you know, cold start wasn't really something I had an opportunity to was really try. Was that also with a manual or an automatic? Uh, that one was also an automatic because um, I don't think the 500X is available with a manual. Maybe it is. I can't remember. Uh, but that was that one. There, that one was an automatic as well. Um, and the, that engine felt great in that application. So. Um, I'm not quite sure what to say. You know, it, it sounds like, you know, there might be something wrong. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, even in the Abarth, you know, it didn't feel like it was running on two engines. It just, it just felt, you know, compared to what I was expecting, I think I was a little underwhelmed, you know, not that it was a terrible engine. It just wasn't as, as impressive as I, as I would expect in that car. Um, it sounds like there, there may be some, some issue specific to Isaac's car, that he might want to get checked out um, if he's if he's having some issues with it. But certainly, you know, most of the the turbo engines, um, you know, that I've driven, you know, all the, the Ford EcoBoost engines, GMs, Volkswagens, uh, you know, and and other brands uh, with similar uh, modern turbocharged engines, including uh, the Honda Civic that my wife and I uh, just bought on Monday. Um, you know, those engines are great. You know, they they're strong down low um you know they, they're very responsive um and i've not experienced you know what uh what isaac is talking about at all and uh the hyundais are another another good example the hyundai and kia uh turbo engines are are also another excellent yeah example. i mean i think that that honda the new the new civic turbo engine is, is really really good to the point where i didn't realize it was a turbo engine even with a manual um that that that's a pretty good trick to pull off uh, with an engine that small with a turbocharger on it. Uh, while we were talking, I looked up the uh, dyno plot of the 1.4 liter turbo engine. So there's a couple of things working against you. Um, even though the modern turbo engines do generally get rid of uh, turbo lag, uh, not this one. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> it's not bad, you know, it's it's still got a pretty healthy uh, amount of boost. Um, 
that I mean, a healthy, pretty healthy amount of torque that, that comes on. You know, you're pretty much all in by 3000 RPM ish. That's a lot of like, when you consider stuff like the, the mini uh, two liter four cylinder or even their one point five liter uh, three cylinder. Those are like all in with their torque by like sixteen hundred or you know even to twelve hundred RPM, depending on on which engine you're talking about. So this looks like it's got a, a bit of significant turbo lag for the modern idiom. And it, it almost looks peaky, too. It looks like it drops off uh, pretty precipitously around 4,500 RPM. It starts to tail tail down until uh, you're down. You know, when you wind it out to, to 6,500 RPM, you're you're down to just about 120 pound feet of torque. So, uh, yeah, it's it's got a little bit of turbo lag and it's peaky. So that's going to make it less than impressive. You know, it'll pull really, really hard for a short amount of time. And depending on how well it's matched to its gearing, uh, that's either going to feel really exciting or kind of disappointing. Um, and with the turbo lag, it's going to feel soft on a launch. The other thing that's going to screw with that feeling is the weight of the car. And the Dart is not the lightest car in its class. It weighs about 3,300 pounds. That's it's not insignificant. That's yeah, I mean, that's actually, on, you know, I think it's pretty much the heaviest car by in, a, in the C segment yeah. by a pretty good margin. And, you know, when I drove a Dart uh, a couple of years ago, I drove the one with the um, the 2.4 liter normally aspirated four cylinder, the uh, so-called Tiger Shark, yeah. <laughs> which is a very, very uh, overrated name. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like the old Willys, like the Go Devil Flathead 4 and the old Jeeps. Yeah. It's like it was the not Go Devil. And yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, it was a decent car, but you know, the, that, that engine struggled a bit in there as well. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I think that if you looking at these specs, these are numbers that remind me of my, my 1990 Volvo 740 turbo. It's dead on in terms of weight. It weighs as much as that car did. Uh, and it has a little bit more horsepower, but not, not by much. That car had 160 horsepower. And so does this. So I honestly, you're 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 back you're driving a throwback um you know in terms of like cold weather performance and stuff honestly the turbo should do better just because the air is more dense um you you should let it warm up before you beat the hell out of it but in in a cold environment uh it's it should actually feel stronger um so i i don't know i'm not not, not sure either there's something wrong or you just you've got that sort of mismatched dart uh thing going on which is Part of the reason why it, it kind of stiffed in the marketplace, you know, it it looked good on paper and then we all kind of drove it and we kind of walked away going, you know, it's just it's not doing it. Um, there's there's some high points to the dart. You know, it is a little bigger. It's comfy. It's, you know, it looks good. But uh, yeah, when you go to trade it, drive a bunch of other stuff, drive like the Fiesta and Focus STs and see what you think. Drive a GTI. Uh, and, and those are really good examples of turbocharged cars. Check out yeah. the Cruze and, and the, um, Hyundai Elantra yeah. and the, uh, the Kia Rio. Basically drive everything. The Forte, the Kia Forte. The Forte is really, really good. The last one I drove was excellent. Yeah. You can get the Forte, I think in, in like SX trim, which is a little sportier. Um, yeah, the, the Forte, the Forte with the, uh, uh, it's a 1.6. Six liter turbo, yeah, one point six liter. Yeah, that's liter, the same uh, engine that's in the Tucson. Two hundred horsepower. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good engine, and that's you know that's that's a great combination. That's that's one of my favorite of the uh, compact hatchbacks. All right, so uh, 
Oh, and don't forget the Civic yeah. too. The, the Civic is excellent. I, I that, to me, that's a high yeah. point for the for the class. But um, you know, there's enough choice out there, and everybody's going to turbochargers, so you shouldn't have a problem uh, seeing what the sort of the, the lay of the land is. Even from 2013, if you bought in 2013, uh, there's been sort of a bloom of turbos across the auto landscape in in the ensuing years. So. Um, and and going forward, you're going to have a hard time finding something that isn't a, a downsized turbo anyway. Yeah, which I, I both <laughs> love and kind of despise at the same time. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Couple, couple of uh, Twitter questions. Uh, we had, uh, let's see, Lansdale Arch and Harold Combs uh, both asked about uh, the uh, the VW diesels, which I think we yeah, talked we, about uh, at the beginning when I was talking about the cruise. At the beginning of the um, show, so wind it back. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, honestly, I, I don't um, think there's any reason you should avoid them. And if the cars were for, I, yeah, I mean, if if you can get one, uh, you know, the, the, I think that the biggest issue is just going to be able to get your hands on one. And if, if you haven't already, you know, uh, given a deposit to a dealer that's got one. Um, chances are you probably won't. Yeah, and get I one. think the other question that was asked was uh, why can they offer them for sale for 2015s? I think because uh, if they were never, if they were never offered for sale, right, they're still on their MSO. Uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but yeah, I mean they're they're still they're still new cars. Um, you know, there there were cars that were either in dealer inventory or at the port uh, in September of 2015 when the stop sale was ordered ordered on these vehicles. Um, and they've now, you know, the, the 2015 models had a new engine, a different engine from the 2009 through 2014, uh, engines. Uh, it was the EA 288, um, uh, which is a, a newer generation of, of diesel engine from Volkswagen. Um, and it, it already had, uh, a urea injection system on there. They had abandoned the, the lean Knox trap on those. So they were able to get a, a fix for those that was approved by EPA and CARB. Um, and that's being applied before these cars are sold. Uh, and like I say, if you, if you can find a dealer that, that has one, um, yeah, go for it. But, uh, I think you're probably too late at this point. All right. And what, what were the other questions? And then the, the last one, uh, was also from Harold, uh, asking about, uh, what are the challenges to getting hydrogen infrastructure going to make fuel cells a reality? Um, uh, it's the classic chicken and the egg, um, you know, Nobody wants to spend a, a million dollars a pop to install a hydrogen station, you know, when there's no hydrogen vehicles and um, it's hard to sell hydrogen vehicles when you don't have any hydrogen stations to fuel them with. You know, there's about 30 now in California, uh, more going in and it should be, they should be up to 40 by the end of this year. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I've written about uh, over the last year or so is that, I think, you know, one of the, the potential applications, there's a couple of potential applications where hydrogen actually makes a lot of sense, hydrogen fuel cells. One is for um, long haul trucking, which uh, Toyota, you know, uh, just made an announcement today uh, about the work they're doing on uh, tractor trailers, long haul tractor trailers powered by their fuel cell system. Uh, you know, and that's an application where, you know, the, the fuel cells are, are well suited to that sort of use, uh, you know, basically, you know, continuous, you know, steady state driving on, on the highway for long distances. Uh, you know, you can uh, put a good size hydrogen tank on there. It'll get you a lot more range than you're going to get from any battery from Tesla uh, for that type of application. Uh, you know, Tesla's idea of a battery powered uh, tractor trailer, I think, is DOA. Um, but. Uh, you know, it can it can work for uh, trucks you know, and you can have 
some hydrogen filling stations, you know, along the main corridors, cross country corridors uh, to service those vehicles. But the other application where it could work um, in the longer term is for some of the autonomous urban mobility services that, that we've talked about a bit in the past. You know, uh, if you've got autonomous vehicles uh, doing ride hailing service around a city, um, you know, those vehicles are operating in a limited geographic area. You know, they're owned by fleets. Um, and, you know, if you've got, you know, several thousand of those vehicles in a city, you know, they could easily be serviced by, you know, a handful of stations strategically placed around the city. You don't need, you know, hun- you know in a typical big city, you might have hundreds of gas stations in the, in the city. Um, you could service, you know, an autonomous fleet like that with, you know, four or five stations around the city and the advantage that they have over battery electric vehicles, you know, for, for that kind of application for uh, ride hailing, you want, you know, those vehicles available all the time. You want maximum utilization of those vehicles. Um, And if they have to sit around for four or five hours every day to charge uh, or even a couple of hours, that really hits the, uh, the bottom line for that type of usage. Um, and with fuel cells, you know, they can pop in once a day for, uh, for five minutes and be back on their way, um, with, you know, without, uh, without wasting a lot of time and, you know, be back in service. Uh, so that's a, that's another application where it could actually make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think too, on the sort of generation and, and in like hardcore infrastructure side, like there already is to a degree, some hydrogen infrastructure in the u.s um but it's not for vehicles so it's not really it's right yeah i mean there's, there's, a, there's a lot of hydrogen yeah. produced you know there, there's enough there's enough hydrogen produced in the u.s more than enough hydrogen produced to uh to feed you know more than 70 percent of our transportation needs which is that like that's a surprisingly um, large figure and, right i mean I, yeah and, and you could actually and, but i mean you know they use hydrogen for a lot of different applications oh yeah. I, mean, I was just thinking um, you know companies you know, are getting into it too like air liquid which you know provides hydrogen to mm-hmm. you know you see their tanks at hospitals and stuff and uh you know they're they're actually getting into looking into hybrid i'm uh, not hybrid uh hydrogen infrastructure for refueling so like i, I had no idea it was that much though Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, but you know, like I say a, a lot of it is actually used in uh, petroleum refining. Um, they, they, you know, they use hydrogen in oil refineries to produce gasoline. Can't they? Yeah. I was, I'm <laughs> just trying to think like, don't, isn't hydrogen a byproduct of cracking the oil in the first place? That that's one of the main sources of it. it or it's usually the actually gas. It's a, uh, yeah, it's from natural gas, not not so much from crude. Um, you know, and most of the hydrogen that's produced is made by reforming natural gas, um, steam steam reformation of natural gas. But you know, there's also other ways of producing hydrogen. You know, you could, um, you know, with with solar and wind, you can uh, use that um, to do electrolysis of of <laughs> seawater. <old> electrolysis, <laughs> high yeah, school hey. experiment. <laughs> hey you know it can, you it fill can work. the balloon and then touch it with and a match and there's <laughs> yeah i mean and you know they're they're working on you know produ- methods to produce hydrogen uh from biomass and and other sources but you know the 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 fact is that it's not so much that hydrogen itself isn't available it's just not um you know it's like the classic line about uh you know what what is it um 
the the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> you know, hydrogen's here. It's just not readily distributed where drivers. Well, need you know, it. The, the problem is too. I, I at least for what I see with with vehicles is like hydrogen fuel cells. Like that's a two two word phrase there versus just a hydrogen fuel. But hydrogen fuel cells like that's that's a, a thornier issue because you've got the you know the precious metal membranes and and, and the actual nature of a fuel cell vehicle um versus just using hydrogen as a as a motor fuel directly um which uh, people are kind of afraid of because they see the pictures of the hindenburg and stuff but um you know you could run your normal internal combustion engine on hydrogen yeah, you can. And it's been done. Um, you know, BMW had a program uh, back, you know, 2007, eight uh, with a fleet of uh, seven series. You know, they, they experimented for years on using uh, hydrogen and also Ford and, and other Monster, companies Monster did as well. Did the, the rotary on hydrogen yep. for a long time. Yeah, in fact, the Wankel engine is very well suited to running on hydrogen because of the combustion characteristics of hydrogen. And, you know, it burns very quickly, uh, much more quickly than gasoline. But, um, you know, it's it's not that from a from an efficiency standpoint, it's not as good as a fuel cell you know, and a fuel, you know, uh, fuel, fuel using hydrogen in a fuel cell uh, is is more efficient. And, you know, it, it really is a, a zero emissions. Um, uh, you know, I mean, all, all you're producing is water vapor from from the uh, car, from, from, from the, the fuel car, cell, the life yeah. cycle of a hydrogen right. fuel like. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, well to wheels, well, well, well to wheels uh, emissions, you know, you know, the, the full life cycle emissions of, you know, hydrogen from producing hydrogen to fuel cells obviously varies on what your source of hydrogen is, but um, it's still better than for petroleum. Right, and I guess that's, yeah, uh, if yeah. it's coming from natural gas like that, too, it's probably not not terrible. And it's like it's not that it's, it doesn't exist. You know, it's not it's not like we're doing something entirely new. Uh, you know, right. You know, it's it's about uh, it's about half of the emissions of, you know, using natural gas directly as a fuel or using petroleum, you know, through gasoline or diesel uh, as a as a liquid fuel. So you get about half of the greenhouse gas emissions if you're using it to produce hydrogen and use it as a, in a fuel cell. So it's just so I guess to get back to the question, too, like it's not here because it's it's just not here. Like it could be here pretty easily is what it sounds like as a fuel. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, there, there needs to be enough demand for the fuel, you know, through having cars on the road uh, in order for, to justify the investment in installing stations. Uh, you know, and then once you have more stations and more people are going to be willing to buy the cars, which will help bring down the price of the cars uh, as you, as you scale up production. So, um, you know, Toyota is selling the Mirai. They've been doing that for about a year now uh, in California. Uh, and uh, I think also in, uh, in Oregon, maybe, or maybe it's just California. Uh, uh, Honda uh, in December launched their uh, latest generation clarity fuel cell. Um, Hyundai has been uh, leasing a, a fuel cell powered Tucson for a couple of years now, and they've got a next generation one coming next year. Um, and in fact, the, uh, um, the uh, Genesis GV80 concept that they showed in New York last week is actually a, a fuel cell plug-in hybrid uh, that uh, uh, 
or that's that's what was the powertrain that was listed on the spec sheet. You know, it's a it's a concept, which means it probably has a actually has right, a golf cart motor in it has, just to move it around. Has whatever you want but, it to have. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, a typical most most concepts, you know, usually have a golf cart motor, uh, just with just enough power to actually roll it out onto the stand. Uh, but you know, nonetheless, um, uh, BMW uh, is planning to uh, launch a fuel cell vehicle uh, around 2020, 2021. Um, Working with Toyota, they have a partnership with Toyota. GM and Honda have a collaboration on fuel cell development, and they're uh, they announced uh, several months ago that they're going to start. Um, they're putting in a fuel cell production facility in uh, GM's Brownstown Township plant, where they also build batteries. Uh, so, you know that there's you know there's still plenty of activity with fuel cells, and you know I think. I think when we find the right, the best applications for it, we'll start to see some some more infrastructure going. So in. the future is not going to be tied to a single fuel. We're going to see a few different types of technologies, no. which I mean, we've we've talked about that before uh, in pretty much every iteration of our podcast, <laughs> just going back years. So. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's that's actually a good thing, you know, having, you know, avoiding a, another monoculture. I mean, you know, we've had a petroleum monoculture for over 100 years, you know, and I think we've. I think it's probably a good idea to avoid, you know, having a, a monoculture again, you know, because it gives us some flexibility, you know, to find the right solutions for each application. All right. And with that, we should apply ourselves to ending the podcast. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, you know, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been episode 21, and we'll catch you next week. All right. Good night. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.